Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Secret Library podcast. This show is created in part with the support of our incredible Patreon members. If you'd like to join and get solo episodes once a month from me with behind the scenes tips, tools, and things I've learned from the writing process, as well as the opportunity to submit questions and get a Patreon-only audio Q&A, you can check it out at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode two of season two of the Secret Library podcast. I'm really excited today to have two guests. We have two guests for the price of one show. Jay Thorne and Rachel Heron, who are the co-hosts of the Writer's Well podcast and each novelist in their own right. Jay and Rachel were kind enough to have me on their show to talk about writing with tarot last year. And so I enjoyed talking to them so much that I wanted to have them on since they're both such prolific writers and hear more about how they revise. This was especially fun because you get to hear a case study of two different types of writers, where Rachel is more of an overwriter and Jay feels he's more of an underwriter. And you look at if you have too much material at the end of a draft, if you're an overwriter, what to do next. And if you're more of an underwriter that feels like, okay, I've got the basics down, but I really need to expand on a lot of material, you'll have tips and really practical steps as to what to do next after listening to this episode. It was so much fun talking to Jay and Rachel, and I know you're going to love this episode too. All right, here we go with Jay Thorne and Rachel Heron. Okay, I'm so excited to have Jay and Rachel on today. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank yeah, you for having thanks. us. We've been excited about this. It's super fun because the reason we first recorded together was you all did a shout out for me, which was one of my favorite moments <laughs> on your show. And then said, oh, do you want to come on? On the show. I think it's the most exciting podcast invite I've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> and I still think you're the only person we've ever interviewed on our show. Isn't that right, Jay? Really? I think so. We've had some guests. Uh, we've had some guest, guest, hosts guest hosts when one of us is gone. Yeah. But yeah, we don't interview people. You are, you are the select. The chosen. Yes. I feel so special. <laughs> that was a great episode too. People should really listen to that one. It was. I it, we talked it. about tarot. Ooh, so fun. <laughs> so I wanted to have you on because obviously this season we're talking about revision, and there's the point when you're inspired at the beginning, and then you you know you hit in the draft, and then there's the point when it's not so fun in the draft, but. I'm really interested in where you each are at the end of your first draft, or as I'm starting to call it, the foundation draft, because there's no way it's only draft one on every part of that book. But what you have kind of nailed down in general at the end of a first draft and what you're looking to tackle in revision. Let's start there, and then we can get into how this happens. For me, I am left with a great sense of existential despair. <laughs> just, um, but I also know that that's what I should have. 
So like you, I don't even consider this a first draft. I call it my zero draft. It is, it's, it's practically, I think Jay, I've heard you say this, that it's just a long outline, basically. You know, it's a, it's a full, <laughs> it's a full length outline. Um, but I think if you're feeling that, that's completely normal. What about you, Jay? Yeah, I think it changes over time. That, that's what's interesting. So if you'd asked me the same question 10 years ago, I probably would have said I'd have a big pile of poo and I, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, but I think the more that you do it, uh, the, the better that first draft gets. So I, I still have very low expectations for what I'm going to end up with at the end of a quote unquote first draft. But I feel like the quality of my first draft words have gotten significantly better the more I do it. And I, I do, I don't is, feel that way. <laughs> no, but I, I, I do think the key is to just lower your expectations yes. about what that first draft is going to be when it's done. Cause like, you're going to, you're going to sit down like, and, and start to read through it. And you're going to think it's the most brilliant piece of literature that's ever been created. And, and you're going to very soon, very quickly find out it's not. And in between in my drafts, I find the greatest writer alive. And two pages later, I'm going to work at Trader Joe's. That's, you know, that I, I find that on every page. And so I kind of know to expect that now. My, my drafts don't get cleaner. I write really terrible first drafts to the point where I regret that that's my process when I sit down to, to go into my first big revision. I wish that I wasn't that person. But what I really rely on is that first read. Have you done that first read? On yours? Not yet. Because I'm waiting Lighting. for notes back. Yes. Good. The end of it. So good. I have done first reads of sections sort of yes. as I'm going because I've been sending it out to someone to edit and then getting notes back to sort of readdress it. So some sections have actually been gone over and read, but I have not read it start to finish, which I am sort of preparing myself emotionally to do. Can I tell you how I do it? And then maybe yes, Jake can please. tell us. So what I do is I sit down. I used to print everything out, but now I'm, I think this is, I'm working my 27th book, so I'm saving trees now. Um, but I, now I just look at it on the computer, but I don't, I usually make a PDF. So I can't take, I can't write on it. I can't change anything. And I just read through the whole thing. This is not the time for, for me for copy editing or changing lines because my brain is really reliable in what it sees and what it is bothered by. If this mm -hmm. sentence, if this sentence bothers me now, it will bother me later. And I can trust that. But what I do is I sit there with a whole whack of post-its, which are always around me. And I write down the ideas that I have while I'm re uh, reading it, whether they are huge, like get, you know, change the focus of the book to this or very small, you know, chapter two, make sure X. And so, and I like post-its better than writing in the manuscript anywhere, because when you write in the manuscript, I tend to lose everything. But if you're writing post-its, you can scan your eye over mm. every idea that you've had later and keep going back to it. Anything that involves buying office supplies, I'm going to be a fan of. I'm exactly. telling you right now. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing I do that's really important to me is um, I reverse outline. Basically, as I read, I write the outline that is actually on the page because of, up until this point, I've been looking at the outline that was the goal outline and it is gone. It's, it doesn't exist anymore, but I write the actual, actually what I have. And then when you compare that outline with the post-its, you kind of develop this roadmap, this really organic, beautiful roadmap. 
Jay, what do you do? I don't even. I don't I'm much I more of a so digital well. guy. Uh, yeah. So my my process now, and this changes every book, uh, as, as they do. You'll refine and change and tweak. But now I'm to the point where I, I used to print out in a three ring binder and sit on the couch and make margin notes, which but is now, fun. Which is fun, yeah. And um, but I'm I'm also trying to cut down on the cost and and the paper and the trees. But what I've uh, since I got a Kindle Paperwhite, what I do now is I send the manuscript to my Kindle, and then I use the highlight note feature in Kindle. So I can just take my Kindle with me to a coffee shop or sit on the couch. And with just me and my fingers, I can, you know, make the notes, highlight, and then I can send those notes to myself so that when I, when I open them up on the computer, they're nice and organized and in sequential order. And I can, you can send them to yourself. My mind is blown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did not how... know. I knew you could share them and there was a way to like make them public, but I did not know you could send them. How do you send them to yourself, wow. Jay? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a bit complicated but like if you if you loan if you get a library book or if you purchase a kindle book then you can export the notes right and that sends it to yourself if it's a, a personal document that you've sent to your kindle then what you have to do is you plug your kindle into the computer and there's the notes folder and you can grab them out of there so oh, it's not technically no. sending them to, to yourself but you can access the notes from when you plug it into your computer that is fabulous because when i read other people's work I always send it to my Kindle and do that. And then I sit at the computer with my Kindle going flip, flip. Okay, that note said, and then typing in. But oh, you're just, God, oh, that's no. so cool. I know that's yeah. so cool. Thank you. Yeah. All just right. Change my life tip right you. here. <laughs> my, my first tip right here. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm curious as to uh, the the process that you're using, that you're, uh, are you you're getting edits on the first draft? Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, and it's brave woman, brave. Woman. I think it's well. It's for a couple of reasons. You know what? I love having podcast hosts on my show. I'm like, you guys are like, <laughs> it's like we could all drive together. It's so good. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't no, help myself. No, I'm like, I'm I'm not being snarky. I'm being enthusiastic. <laughs> it's yes. Um, but again, this is sort of in sections of it, particularly the first half of the book, it was more like draft three. It was the, the last probably 35% that I hadn't either hadn't written or the direction had changed enough that I was going back to it and writing it differently. So it worked really well to send notes, get notes back, and then do some revision on sections for the first probably half of the book. But once we got to the halfway point, I was like, I'm not going to rework these now because it's going to be like putting the, my foot on the brake and the gas at the same time. Great. I can't analogy. do it is how it feels. So yeah. then we just went to, okay, I have these notes to go back to next round. But I mean, I had written an outline, I had written an extensive character study, I had written probably half the book and then realized that the dynamic between the main character and another character in the book was the power dynamic was actually backwards from what it should be. So I was like, oh, that's why. And so then I had to go all the way back. And then I was originally writing it in third and I had to change it to first. And then, you know, oh, yeah. so it was a lot of those kind of tweaks, but the story was like, I didn't feel weird about sending it out. And partly after like two years, I was like, am I crazy? Like, should I throw this in the garbage? Like, is this any good? And so that was another reason of just getting someone else to look at it. 
And okay. how did you find the person to look at it? Is, a, is it a friend or did you hire an editor? I interviewed him on the podcast. Perfect. <laughs> Talk and about then I read, I know I read his book and I was like, that's, that is what I'm trying to do. So then um, I ended up, I ended up working with him. And you, have you had any of his notes back yet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had a bunch of them. Yeah. And how, how did that feel to get on a, on a zero draft? It was good. It was good because I think, um, oh, and this is my, this is one of my next questions is I have bad habits from draft one that need to be addressed. So I'm curious what your bad habits are. I seem to have this problem where I go into a fugue state and use the same word like three times in the same paragraph. And I'm like, how do I not know this? This is a pet peeve of mine. I constantly correct this as an editor and other people. And yet I've used whatever fairly, you know, like a 25 cent, 50 cent word, like three times in this paragraph. How did this happen? (laughs) So that's definitely something he pointed out to me. And I was like, that's correct. You are correct, sir. That is so hard to see for yourself though, that you, you know, just use the word blissful four times on one page and you, and you haven't used anything like that before. Yeah. It's bizarre. I don't know. So what do you all find that you have to address sort of on a, almost if we're thinking about this, like an onion, if you're going to peel back things that you have to address in a revising draft, what's kind of the outside of the onion? And then we can kind of work our way in. Mm, That's a good question. For me, it is always wordiness. I am, I believe that in writing Landia, there are overwriters and underwriters, and I am an overwriter. I tend to write from the moment the front door opens to the moment the back door closes, and everything in between, every thought or banal piece of conversation that the people could have in between that front door and the back door is on the page, and it's really tedious. And as an example, I'm writing a thriller right now, and I'm more than 25% through the book, and the inciting incident has not happened yet. So, <laughs> and that should really occur maybe at 10,000 or 12,000. So I, I know that I'm just going to have to, um, I, I just call it tightening. For me, it's tightening, you know, looking at the scene and going, oh, it's boring. Where is the one thing that is happening that is driving plot and character? And get in as late as possible and get out as early as possible. For, so for me, it's shedding a lot, a lot, a lot of words. And it's also, it feels really freeing. You know how when you, when you really spring clean your closet and then you hang up all the clothes and you love all mm. the clothes that are in there? That's kind of what it feels like for me um, when I look back at that scene that is now doing exactly what it was supposed to. I just had to meander for a really, really long time to get there. What about you, Jay? Wow, I'm the complete opposite. In I, so am I, so am I. Yes. You both are underwriters. I'm an underwriter. And I, my biggest problem is in, uh, with continuity issues, uh, dialogue. And I hear from my editor, like, I don't know who said this. How'd this character get from here to here? Like, I have these gaps where it's- <laughs> I have no gaps. It's here, <laughs> right? It's in my head, but it didn't quite make it to the page. And then by the end of the chapter, there's some confusion as to- who was there? How'd they get there? Where are they going? Who said what? Uh, so I think classic underwriters have that problem. You have to go back in and you kind of have to fill in the gaps because the gaps are what pulls reader out, readers out of the story. You know, what's really interesting about that is I think that on a uh, purely judgmental and subjective, my own, my own viewpoint <laughs> of this is that overwriters and underwriters always bat are, it's about how much we trust our readers. And I think mm. underwriters, I think you all trust the reader more than I do. 
And I think, I think that what writers need to do, and my goal is always to trust the reader to be smarter than I am. So I need to give them as little as possible to make these cognitive leaps. And you all are already trusting them to make even maybe a few more leaps than they, they should have to. Yeah, we think making them work too hard. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> like you're gonna solve this all by yourself with no yeah. help from me. No, no clues. I think also I, I like the idea of this because I think it's also we have maybe different fears mm. in mm. in how we're addressing it. Like my biggest fear is that I'm gonna write something that's gonna be boring or that if there's something to figure out in the story, which in this one, I don't know if there is, there is a, a sort of a mystery, but it isn't a mystery book per se. Mm -hmm. But my fear is that it would be really obvious early on and that people are going to be like, yeah, I knew that from the beginning. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that was really not obvious at all. Um, <laughs> that's what my fear is. So maybe that is some of the underwriting. I don't know if you feel the same way, Jay. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, and that's a hard thing to to deal with. I, I remember the day that I realized that foreshadowing <laughs> was not brilliant authors being brilliant. It was authors figuring out how to and when to foreshadow in their books in revision, which I never knew. I just thought they, they dropped those breadcrumbs on their first and only draft. I thought that for a really long time. I know. Why do we think there's only one draft? It's like we read books and we're like, how did they just sit down and write this? <laughs> it's because they didn't. Well, that, that brings up a, a, a thought in my mind. So I teach this class 90 days to revision and I take students through from zero draft to first draft or from first to second or whatever they're thinking the, the, the verbiage is around that. And the very first time I ever taught that class, I forgot to tell them this. I still feel really bad <laughs> about it. I forgot to tell them that this will not be your only draft. This is oh. your, your bloody draft. This is the one where you're really, really building the carcass. You're, you're slapping the, the joints and the tendons onto the bones you have. But it's not going to be pretty yet. There's, there's many more dr little, little drafts to come or other tweaks. This is not going to be it. And, and I really feel like I did them a disservice. I just thought they knew. So I will say it here on the podcast for everyone to know. There's not just the one. It doesn't, you don't finish it and go, oh, thank God, let's publish it. <laughs> yeah, this is something, I mean, when I said, oh, I've finished the draft, all these people were like, congratulations, you finished your book. I was like, no, 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 you may not read it. No. <laughs> not I don't time. know if, if, if either of you know, uh, sort of that he's an outlier, but the way Dean, Dean Koontz writes is fascinating to me. He, uh, yeah, and this really, <laughs> this will, this will make your head spin, especially talking about revision. He writes a chapter and he doesn't start the next chapter until he's got that chapter perfect. So he might go back on chapter one and revise it like seven or eight times until it's where he wants it. And then he starts writing chapter two. So by the time he gets to the end of his draft, he's done. I hate him. Number one. I know people who think this way and I find it bonkers. And I don't know. I think that there's too much that I discover. I like how Joanna Penn calls it a discovery writer instead of a pantser. It feels so purposeful. I, I definitely do outline, but it's more like 
stepping stones between, I know I need to get across these moments. I don't even know always how I'm going to get from one stepping stone to the next. There's definitely surprise in there. Otherwise it would be really boring to write. But the other person whose writing process I'm so fascinated by is, do you know Diana Gabaldon's? Yes, I do. Crazy pants. Please this describe. This is amazing. So she takes, it's, uh, to me, I think of it as like crocheting granny squares, which is a weird <laughs> metaphor. Really good she, metaphor for it. She has like a sensory experience and she kind of puts herself in it and is like, okay, um, I'm in a room. Okay, my face is cold, but my hands are warm. Okay, I must be close to a fire. Okay, what's happening? And she writes whatever scene is around this. And then she goes over and over that scene, kind of Dean Kuhn style. She gets that as perfect as possible, but she doesn't know where it goes in the book. And she's writing these 600-page tomes yeah, full of, full of scenes that are full of plot that are all out of order. Yeah. And she just then wow. sets it aside and is like, that's as good as that scene's going to be. All right, what's next? And then she tunes in, finds something, writes that. And then at the end, she looks at all of them and goes, oh, okay, we got a quilt. It's so kind of that's mysterious crazy. and rad. It and really not really at all is. the way I do it. But I, I love I, the difference. I would love to say the one thing that I always... Um, I enjoy saying because I, this was my problem for many, many years is that I would start a book. It was a great book in my mind. And I would do that thing. I told myself that I was enough of a perfectionist that I needed chapter one to be revised, 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 revised as good as I can get it before I went to chapter two. But the problem was I wasn't good enough at story, uh, at, at story structure yet. So I would build myself into a wall. I didn't understand how I'd come to that wall. And then I would get stuck. So I always say, um, if you believe that your process is that you must revise as you go and you're completing books that you're proud of, then that's your process. If you are revising as you go and you're not completing books over the course of years um, or whatever time you're looking at, then you have to try something else. You have to try a crappy first draft all the way to the end because that is, I'm going to, I always exaggerate and say it's like 95% of writers' methods. I would say maybe realistically 90% of writers write that way. But that means the odds are that, you know, the three of us fall into that category. Yep. Right here. I've only met three people in my life who are like that. And now I've heard of Dean Koontz who, um, his books, are, I don't hate him. I just am very jealous of his process. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think... It doesn't sound fun, though. It doesn't sound as sparkly. No. I, I want to be surprised. It's just this, I, well, uh, I, if I think about I what know, I didn't though. know at that point, I couldn't possibly have known that the first draft, the first chapter was finished until I wrote the last chapter. Yeah, I think that's where, like, it's, it's a bit ambiguous because I don't know exactly how he does it. I don't think he has an outline. I think he, he pants that's no. what I mean. Like he, he'll write the chapter, but he writes it until it's perfectly done. And then he goes to the next one. But how so, does he know? Well, that's, that's the thing that I always get hung up on because I get, you know, I might get 17 or 18 chapters in and I decide to make a change and then it would drive me bonkers to have to go back and revise the previous 17 if I thought they were already quote unquote done. And, and I, th I believe that if we think that they are done, if we, really believe that we are a lot less um able to see that we should change it our, our brains just close to that idea yeah and the thought of cutting is really brutal if you think oh i worked so hard on this to make yeah. it good or to make it you know to finish it 
And and I'm I, I feel happy that at the end of this draft, I don't feel particularly attached to anything about it. I'm like, okay, if I have to, you know, read these scenes and then rewrite the whole thing as I go to go through it, that's fine. Yeah. I think that's a really healthy place to be, honestly. That's I think you have to expect that. Yeah. Yeah. So what percentage would you say changes from the end of draft zero or draft null or beta draft or foundation draft, whatever we're calling it? <laughs> what percentage do you think stays and what percentage goes and becomes something else? I can answer this precisely because I keep track of it. Um, I the, One of my books, Pack Up the Moon, Jay's heard me say this before, uh, ended up 97,000 words long and there were 103,000 words in the trash that were not repeated in the book. I had a a bigger than a book inside the trash. Um, and that blew my mind so much that ever since then, I've really been tracking. Basically, when I cut words out, I put them in the trash just so that I could count them later. <laughs> I also <laughs> tell myself, you know, that these words are genius and I'm going to go back and get them later. I'm just storing them. I call it the cuts file. I don't call it. Yep. Trash. I have one too. Yeah. And so I put it in there, tell them lovingly that I'm, I'm going to be back and I've pulled stuff out of there like once or twice in my life. And I've gotten it down to about between 22 and 25%. That's what ends up in the, so if I write a 90,000 word draft, or let's just call it a hundred thousand word draft, um, by the end of my revisions, there will be 20 to 25,000 words in the trash. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, yeah, JD? So that's, because I'm an underwriter, I don't have that issue. Uh, right. I'm not, cutting, I'm not right. cutting anything. I have to but, cut a quarter of my words out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I would say 100% has been changed. So if I look at from zero draft or null or foundation all the way to publication, I have probably changed every single word because every revision I go through, yeah. especially the early ones, the earlier ones are more rewriting than they are revision, uh, where I will and this is getting in the weeds, but I, I will put, Let's a, get in the put weeds. my, yeah, I mean, I'll put my cursor in front of a paragraph. I'll hit enter twice to give myself a little bit of white space. And then as I'm looking at the paragraph below, I'm retyping it right above. And I do that oh. paragraph by paragraph. You so, do? Yeah. So Fascinating. It's a complete rewrite. I'm, I'm literally retyping the words the, for the in, entire thing. Okay. So then what do you do with the paragraph? The original well, I go paragraph. One, I go one at a time. So do you delete um, them then, or do you? Yeah. Well. Well. So yes, but I want to hear I have, the whole process. Okay. So if um like in uh, in Scrivener's when I'm I'm doing the first drafting, right? Yep. So I do all my first drafting just vomit. It's in it's in Scrivener, and then what I do is I um I create a second instance so I can always go back and look at at the first draft. But right. in the second instance, it's just duplicating the first draft. And that's when I move paragraph by paragraph. And as I type a new one, I delete it. And I type a new one and I delete it. And, and I might do that two or three times before then I'm just sort of taking the draft and just making little changes as I go. So you what go do you, all the way through the draft several times this way. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a lot of keystrokes, number one. What do you get out of that? I'm, I'm so curious. What, 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 what are the, how do the paragraphs differ? Um, I would say it's mostly stylistic. It's not necessarily content or plot. It's characterization, it's setting, it's description. It's, it's the things that I bracket as I'm flying through that first draft. So in that first draft, I might say, you know, uh, Jordan walked into a bar with Sally. And then in brackets, I put describe bar. 
And, I, and then I go to the next paragraph, right? So when I get into that first revision and I see those brackets, I'm like, okay, that's another paragraph I have to type in here. It's also too like the, the more I do this, the fewer of those I do. So I, I had to do that a number of times in the first couple books. Uh, now I can, I can do a, a full rewrite probably just once. And that's usually enough to get me to like the polished revisions. Nice. That's amazing. I love I it. I might try it. Oh my God. Well, I have another <laughs> underwriter. I'm like, Ooh. Uh, well, I'll tell you where that came from is okay, uh, all my collaborations and, and developmental editing that I do, especially on the collaborations, I was positioning myself as the reviser and not the drafter. So whether I got them from Zach or other writers, what I would do is I would have all, I started just by trying to fix the paragraph and I realized that these drafts are so rough and it's not my, there aren't my words that it was taking me longer to try and fix what was on the page as opposed to look at what's there and just rewriting it. Mm. And, and, and so that's where that came from is, is through this idea of collaboration where I, I could just see the, the rough paragraph. And as I'm looking at it, I'm kind of typing my version of it. And it seemed to go a whole lot faster that way. Ah, and so then, then everything you can just is in your do it voice. for yourself. Then, then you can do it for yourself. And, and some, some paragraphs need less work than others. It's not like you necessarily have to type word for word every single paragraph. But I love being able to see like, what did I type? And what am I typing right now in the same screen real estate? Interesting. <laughs> I have never heard that one before. Really? I, I, I Jane, I like talk it. about this stuff all day long. And I should, I feel like I should know all these things about you, Jane. You're blowing my mind. I don't, my I don't mind. think I've ever, I don't think I've ever told anyone that's one of my revision what? techniques. So yes. uh, yeah, there you go, Caroline. It's an exclusive. <laughs> an exclusive. I love it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever talked about that anyway. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, it's, it's, a, it's definitely one of these things where you think, oh, this is, this is just some weird thing I do, whatever. It's not going to be useful to anybody. Now you're going to end up having to write a book about this type of revision, <laughs> today, by the way. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, the paragraph by paragraph, J. Thorne method. Okay, he'll have the book done by, you know, Tuesday. So look, look for it on Amazon shelves in two weeks. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, you know, let us know. We'll link to it. Yeah, I will. I'm just going to say, I'll have a link for the show notes for you. <laughs> Perfect. So what do you, and if you're things that you think, okay, I'm going to do this in the next draft, like the brackets describe bar kind of situation, are there things that people can just set aside and, and not worry about in that foundation draft or that you think they're worrying too much about that can slow you down in the initial stages? And just say, you know what, leave that, leave that for the revision stage. There, I think there are so many of those things, but it is a personal issue. Um, a lot of people see what they're writing in front of their eyes, like a movie or, you know, like Diana Gabaldon can feel it viscerally. Um, so they naturally write setting. They naturally write uh, the visible, but for myself, I, uh, I, I just suck at setting. I need to really, really think about it. So kind of like Jay said, I never, ever write setting. Jay walks with Molly into the bar period. So you can, you kind of get to decide for yourself what your later passes can be. It can be, um, setting, it can be, uh, character description. Um, we forget to give our characters as much, um, interior bodily feeling as we need to. And for me, that's just a pass. I go back and make sure that I know how that character's feeling inside her body in every scene, um, if I haven't put it in naturally. But it, it is really about what you don't do naturally. What don't you do naturally? What do you 
what do you feel like you're always like, oh, I should have put more action or setting or do you have something that you're missing in your own work on those first I think, drafts? I think I just don't, I don't do setting either. I'm more interested in like what happened. I'm trying to figure out what happened and how, what is everybody thinking about? What are they worried yeah. about? So I'm more in heads. And, and my problem is that everybody's always eating. <laughs> like every meaningful conversation happens like over food. And I, I like desperately am trying to stop this. And I'm like, please. Like one time I had my characters, I like took them out somewhere. And one of them was like, oh, I'm really hungry. And I'm like, no, you're not hungry. <laughs> No, stop it. So I think another thing I have to do is to go through and look at all of these circumstances in which they were interacting and saying, could this happen somewhere else? Yes, um, that is a great pass. That is such a great pass. I, I allow myself to have what I call kitchen scenes in my first draft. Oh and then my I, God, the I kitchen. move them out of the kitchen later. I just let myself do it because that's where they, they all wander to. And that's where we wander to in life, right? That's where we congregate. But in books, we don't want to be in the kitchen all the time. Uh, oh there was God, one. Do you like, please stop it. Please get it. Oh my God. No, don't make any coffee. No. And they're making <laughs> coffee. And you're like, oh. Literally one time, I think it was my third or fourth book um the woman is in the kitchen she's thinking about her dead husband and and she's sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and i got so irritated with her i had her <laughs> i had this thought and i didn't know where the thought came from but i i realized that she would remember her husband telling her that something was under the kitchen table he put something under the kitchen table and she realizes that she must pull up the floorboards and dig under it. And indeed she finds this can that he's hidden for her before he died um, when he was building the house. So that I, I was just so irritated. I made her destroy the kitchen. I don't know. I think that worked. sounds great though. Yeah. It actually worked for the plot. So, <laughs> so I think the plot you, is yeah, the plot is really all that matters to me in the, in that first draft. It's the only yeah. thing that matters. I, because everything else I can layer in or I can add, but like if I don't have the plot right, then it's major overhaul. It's it's throwing words out completely and That's rewriting. What I do. Yeah, and and you know that my problem is with plot. I I am a character driven writer, and and I will write a whole book and go there. Oh crap! There's no plot. Yeah, so like I, I think you know cultural references, ethnicities, character voice description setting that's all stuff i don't even think about like all my first draft all the characters sound the same i i use placeholder names i use like bob and joe and jill because they're easy to type and i just do a fine replace later like i i really get down to the bare essentials on that first draft i love it liberating it's so liberating i love that you said that jay because the character knowing who your characters are people get really really hung up on that and feel like they need to know how this character would react in every situation and what their needs are and what their goals are. And oftentimes I don't know what that is until the book is done. And then in my first big pass, that's a large thing that I add. I really bulk up the character arc that now I understand. I thought I understood it when I started writing the book, but like you said, um, how your character's power dynamics shifted. And that was them coming into their own characters, into their full selves. And you didn't know that when you started. Yeah, I was like, why is this not working? This doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, oh, this one is actually resisting the other one's authority. She's not like cowering under it. That doesn't make any sense. That's so fabulous. She would just do nothing and then it'd be really boring. She has to like resist. And for me, if, if, when I realized that, I would write myself a post-it and I would, um, <laughs> this, is, this is, I'm a post-it girl. This is, this is one thing that I believe in both first drafts and in revision drafts is that I'm a, I'm a linear writer. I like to go from beginning to end of the book every time I'm 
going through the book, um, whether it's the first draft or a, a subsequent draft. But when I do have a major revelation, I write forward as if the whole entire book already has that, right? Mm. Yes. Because then if you have to fix it later, you're only, if, if, you de- if you decide at the midpoint that she needs a sister, you go back and fix your whole book so that she has a sister. And then you decide at the three quarters mark, oh, that was a bad idea. She shouldn't have had a sister. If you're just writing forward as uh. if she's always been there, you only have 25% to fix instead of the full 75% that you've slowed yourself down with. Yep. Also liberating. We don't have to make, nothing should be perfect. Even in these, in these drafts, we're always getting closer to perfection, but we never actually get there. I know. It's like you get closer and you get a little closer. It's like that walking halfway to the wall thing. Yes. The yeah. asymptote. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't ever, it's like, you're so close, but it's so far. But at that point, I mean, it's not the same book you imagined when you first thought about it. It never is. Which is difficult, right? It's difficult and lovely. The The book that you write ends up being the book you were meant to write, but it never matches the feeling that you had when you thought about the book for those six months or whatever time you've, you've been dreaming about writing the book. You failed at writing that. We all fail at writing the book we want to write, but yeah, the book we write is better. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, that's a misconception, I think, that pantsers have about plotters. And given that I'm, I'm closer to the plotting end of the spectrum versus pantsing, I think the, the misconception is, well, if you're plotting or you're outlining, you, there's no excitement or there's no spontaneity and it's boring and it's dull. And it, it doesn't matter how, how great my outline is, the book still turns out differently than what yeah. I thought it was going to be in a really good and positive way. And uh, there's, there's still a lot of surprises. And if I write a, a 5,000 word outline on a 85,000 word novel, I'm still pantsing 80,000 of my words. So it, you know, I, I think there really is an opportunity there for all of us, no matter how you approach that first draft, that you're going to finish in a way that's really exciting and different and, and fun. And, and that's, that's why we keep doing this. And it doesn't really matter how you start that process. It's just that you get there in the end. Yes. And I think that the, the, the whole thing of you have an idea, you have an outline, you have things that you think will happen. I mean, characters do rebel. And then you, you try to get them to go to this place and they're not going or they keep trying to make coffee or whatever it is they won't stop doing. And then you can go back and decide and kind of try to convince them in the revision draft. I mean, are you trying to convince characters or do you tend to go along with them as you're revising? If oh, they change the plan. I smack them around quite a bit. Do you? They, they do change the plan on me sometimes, but but they're very bad at it. They, oh, okay. They don't, always, they don't always change the way that they should for this particular book. And I personally have a large, like, egotistical problem in that all of my characters accidentally, if I'm not paying attention, they do the thing that I would do if I were in a mm. situation. And that gets boring over the course of an entire book and lots of characters or lots of books and lots of characters. I really need to make sure that if my my characters wander away, they're doing it for a really good reason and not just because if I were in those shoes, I would do that. And it's really hard as writers to put ourselves, to make characters that are really different from ourselves, but that's our job, right? And to have reasons and understand why they're doing that. So especially with fiction, I think we're always kind of grappling with that. And that is something that I layer in in revision. I, I, I know who they are and I can make them more like that. What about you, Jay? Do your characters wander? Well, I don't, I don't think, again, talking about sort of the, the plot angle versus the character angle, they don't wander in the sense that 
if I need them to be in a certain place, they're somewhere else. They don't wander that way. Uh, I put them where they're supposed to be. But their their reactions. <laughs> put them in their place. <laughs> yeah. But I think their their reactions in a certain situation or given a certain circumstance, that's where I sort of let whatever happens, happens. And then I will accentuate that on the, on the revision. So if I feel like a, uh, I thought a character was going to be angry and instead that character turns out to be hurt, well, then in revision, I'm going to amplify the pain there and not try and force it into where I thought it should go. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I can see emotional shifts being something. I mean, I think that the psychology is also something that's really fun to think about in revision. Like, oh, would somebody really do this? Or why would they do that? Or how would they feel about it? Because sometimes I think as an underwriter, I tend to assume that people are really aware of how the character is feeling and that it's really obvious. And then when my character gets mad and picks a fight with somebody and my editor says, where the hell did that come from? And I think it's been seething since page 12. Um, (laughs) I'm like, maybe the seething needs to be a little more obvious. Which is where a nice, nice, juicy, visceral detail can Mm -hmm. come in. You don't have to say anything, but you can show that prickling on their skin kind of thing. Yeah. Yep, exactly. But I think, I think the psychology and this sort of character experience could be very exciting. So if people are getting stuck or feel scared about the second draft, what, what do you have any advice or thoughts as a framework that people can carry with them, almost like a teddy bear into, into the second draft. Cause I hear a lot of people, I am actually excited by revision, but I know a lot of people are like, Oh, they're scared. They're like drafting is the fun part. And revision is the scary part. And it's going to be all saying no to things and, and really hard. So I'm interested in what your emotional experience is of it and alternate sort of emotional imagery for revising. I think it's all a matter of framing. I really believe that. I had myself convinced that I didn't like first drafting as much as I, as I do revisions. And it was all a framing issue that I had. And I had to reframe the, that activity and, and tell myself that, no, this, this can be fun. Like you can really enjoy this. And, and I think what's daunting about revisions and when I hear from clients about revising and how how difficult it is especially when you're on you know page one and you're looking up at the 300 page mountain in front of you I, I just say you know what it's just one step at a time you put one foot in front of the other you start with one paragraph and then you just but you have to start and you can't be overwhelmed and think you have this whole massive manuscript you say nope I have this paragraph and w- and once you get started on something whether it's revising or exercising or, you know, a a diet that you're trying, like once you start, it becomes so much easier. It's just getting off the block that you have to convince yourself you can do by just making very small incremental improvements. And I believe that, but I also need my my whoobies, my teddy bears. Um, and my revision You're much more a cheerleader are... than I am. Revision whoobie is great. <laughs> I am the revision whoobie. I love that. Um, but Jay, I really, <laughs> I really agree with you, Jay. That Jay and I both used to have this problem where we would say that we hated first drafts and we loved revision. And for me, I've just come to realize that a first draft is a loss of control and I am a control freak and I don't enjoy that feeling. Um, but if I know that about myself, I can say, okay, for the next hour and a half, I'm going to lose control and I'm going to go crazy. Here I go. And I do the first draft. Revision to me is really comfortable because it suits a control freak's personality. But in, in terms of that control freakism, I need 
my actual outline of what happened in that first draft, the way I wrote it and the way I want to fix it. And I use those post-its that I took all the way through. Um, in fact, I write post-its now while I'm writing the first draft, you know, just, you know, make scene 17 mean something. And I'll have that <laughs> in my revision one. file. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a common one. And so I've, I've written all over this outline. I know that, I know now that scene one might need to go completely. Scene two might be the start. Um, so, I, so I have these notes to myself. But my third, so I have my outline, I have my post-its, and my third would be is um, the theme that I don't really push myself to have a theme when I'm writing a first draft because I don't know what it is. But it's usually pretty loose and broad. But by when I go into my first big revision, I have it. I uh, surprise, I put it on a post-it and I stick it on my computer up in the corner and that's where it lives for this book's duration. And it's usually something, you know, easy. My two themes that I, uh, uh, core story things that I go back to are always uh, family is chosen and the mother-daughter relationship. So it's probably either family is chosen or the mother-daughter mother -daughter relationship. And then when I'm looking at each scene as I get to it, I hold it up against that lens and does this lens even very quietly and implicitly, does it state something about that lens? And if it doesn't, I shift it so that it does. It's not something that a reader would notice. It's not a hit you over the head, but it, it makes that scene earn its place in the book. And if it hasn't earned its place, I either need to make it do so or combine it with another scene, move something around, get rid of it entirely. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. It those totally are my does. those are my must haves and I put them under my pillow when I go to sleep and um and the other thing I do is I read over that outline and I uh, I just kind of glance at the outline and I read over every post-it every single day so if I have a major thing that I know I need to accomplish in Act Three and I'm still in Act One I have I'm reading those posts every day when I sit down and my subconscious is primed. So if I know that that's something that I want to happen in act three, I might, as I'm going through something in act one, stumble upon an idea that will help bring that out later and, and seed it in there. So I'm always being reminded of the entire book's changes and it takes five or 10 minutes to read those before you start. Awesome. I oh, went very, so exciting. I went, I went concrete and granular on that, that one. That is what we like. 30,000 foot view. <laughs> I love the concrete and granular. Um, I think we have a lot. I think we have a lot here that I'm excited to play with. And I think others will be too. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing so much of your specific process and your thought process. And it's always fun. I, I love having two guests. It's like, <laughs> it's like twice as much party. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. This is such a pleasure. Yeah. It was so nice to just show up on a podcast with Rachel and not have to prep or <laughs> not have to like prepare the files and like schedule everything. And, you know, well, we're just, just going like, to be out. I know. Which is like, thank you. And that's it. I know. It's so nice being the guest. I love being the guest. <laughs> I do too. It's like going on a spa holiday. <laughs> <laughs> With really awesome people. Yeah. So yeah. thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week.
Until then, happy writing. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.